Hello and welcome to Everyday Medicine. I'm Dr. Luke and in this podcast series I'll be sharing conversations with colleagues exploring their special interests in medicine and bringing insights, ideas and advice for medical practice. In this podcast we're talking with an expert about metabolic bone disease. This is characterized by microarchitectural deterioration of bone structure, loss of bone mass and changes in bone metabolism leading to reduced bone strength and increased fracture risk. It's described as a silent epidemic and it's estimated that 50% of postmenopausal women and 30% of men over the age of 60 will experience a minimal trauma fracture, which leads to a twofold increased risk of a subsequent fracture, significant morbidity and premature death with an excess mortality within five years of the first minimal trauma fracture. The one-year mortality after sustaining a hip fracture, for example, is estimated to range between 14 to 58%, quite staggering. And for Australians over the age of 50 years, 66% or 4.74 million have either osteoporosis or osteopenia. In 2017-18, there were over 93,000 hospitalisations for minimal trauma fracture of patients over the age of 50. Clearly a major burden for our health system and society. There are multiple factors at play here, including declining sex hormone levels, activity, diet, comorbidities such as COPD, celiac disease, rheumatoid arthritis and indeed any inflammatory chronic problem and a host of medications. Uh, an outstanding example of course is steroids. In this podcast with expert endocrinologist and bone metabolism researcher Dr Sim Lewin, we will explore the etiologies, diagnosis by dual energy x-ray absorptiometry or DEXA and the very important subject of management including the use of anabolic agents such as the PTH derived teriparatide, as well as anti-absorptive agents including the biphosphonates, which bind to the bone surface inhibiting osteoclast activity in favour of osteoblast function, and denosumab, which is a monoclonal antibody which inhibits rankle and the maturation of osteoclasts. Please welcome Sim Lee Wen to the podcast. So Dr. Sim Lewen, thank you very much for making time to see me this morning and welcome to Everyday Medicine. And we're here to talk about a very important problem, that is the problem of uh, minimal trauma fracture or osteoporosis, metabolic bone disease. Before we launch into that discussion, can I ask you uh, how you got into this field? You're an endocrinologist. Can you tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. So firstly, thank you for having me here. The idea, as you mentioned, I am an endocrinologist. One of my interest areas is metabolic bone disease. The, I guess, from a, in terms of how I got to where I am at the moment, I have been involved in a research project with regards to investigating osteonecrosis of the jaw, which is a rare complication of osteoporosis therapies. And what we we're looking at in that study was looking at a treatment, a treatment, medical treatment of that condition. The, from that, I am involved in quite a few osteoporosis mm-hmm. clinics across uh, Melbourne. Mm-hmm. And I guess, as you can understand, osteoporosis is a very big issue. So I am quite involved in quite a few initiatives with regards to that. Yeah, that's such an important uh, mm. area of medicine for us to be thinking about. It's, it's described as a silent epidemic, yes. metabolic bone disease. And from my reading, um, and we just briefly talked about this before we started, that 50% of postmenopausal women and 30% of men over 60 can be expected mm. to have a minimal trauma fracture, which is, which is very substantial. 66% of people over the age of 50 
uh, in Australia, which is 4.74 million people roughly have osteopenia or osteoporosis, and that's a fracture roughly every three seconds. Huge, huge problem. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I'm probably, maybe I'm a bit osteopenic myself, not quite sure. <laughs> um, and, and it's said that when you have a fracture, your risk of having a second fracture sort of doubles and then the mor morbidity and mortality for those patients increases significantly over the next four or five years. We'll come to that perhaps in a moment. But can you tell us a little bit about why uh, osteopenia and osteoporosis form? What, what's the, yeah. Why does it happen? Look, the challenge with osteoporosis, osteopenia, is it's often asymptomatic. Ultimately, what we're looking at is fracture risk, yes. and we're looking at how strong the bones are. The, I guess when we get to the osteoporosis range, what it means is that the bones are not as strong as usual, therefore it can't withstand the usual forces, so you end up fracturing uh, without actually, you know, with minimal trauma or at times you wouldn't otherwise fracture. So it is asymptomatic until that happens. There are various reasons and as a very simplistic way of thinking about it is we know that peak bone mass occurs when you're in your 20s after puberty and as after that it literally is all downhill. Mm. Once you go through menopause and I, in other words you lose estrogen because estrogen is very important for bone health then that that rate of decline is is perpetuated or you know, is accelerated. That's why women tend to get osteoporosis quite quickly after menopause. It still happens in men because that ongoing process happens over time, but it's much more gradual in men. So, but I guess the big factor is age. The big factor is over time, especially once you're no longer estrogenized after menopause, you, you do lose bone over time. The way I think about it is the bones generally get renewed on an ongoing basis. So, it's what we call bone turnover. So, I think of it as... You, you dig up old bone, you dissolve old bone, you replace it with new bone, and that's an ongoing process, which is the bone turnover, is bone turnover, bone remodeling. Mm. And that's the way we keep the bones nice and fresh. It's sort of like a, a road. You want you need to keep resurfacing the road to keep it strong. If you don't resurface the road, it gets into disrepair. The problem is every time you go through that cycle, the amount of bone you dissolve doesn't get fully replaced. So, yeah. if, so if you keep going through that cycle over time, you gradually lose a little bit of bone. So that's a very simplistic way of thinking about it. Mm. Mm. Other conditions that contribute to bone loss can be broken down into accelerated bone loss. So you're dissolving, you're digging bigger holes, you're losing bone more quickly. Yes. Or there are certain conditions where you don't form bone as much. So if you have a mismatch between bone formation and bone resorption, you can also lose bone more quickly. And the classic one is actually prednisolone or steroid therapy, yes. which yes. causes a defect in bone formation. Yes. Okay. So there's there's something I've read about, which yes. is this uh, rather unusually named uh, rankle receptor activator of nuclear kappa ligase, yes. which uh, that's a mouthful, isn't it? C can you explain that? How, how important is that for understanding of osteoporosis? Look, the a lot of the understanding of bone turnover and bone remodeling comes back to how uh, the osteoclasts, which are these cells that dissolve bone, and the osteoblasts, which are the cells that form bone, communicate with each other. The And rankle is one of the, or rankle ligand, is one of those receptors on the osteoclast, which then, I guess, control the bone remodeling cycle. Yes. So what happens is if you have a lot of rankle or rankle ligand action, that leads to increased osteoclast or bone resorption. Yes, so, so it's an osteoclast sort of factor, not correct. osteoblast factor. Correct. So what you try to do from a, from a rankle point, we, we know that it has that effect. Usually, and I guess this is where we come to therapeutics a little bit, mm. Mm. or proli, which is one of the, is actually the most commonly used medication in Australia. Mm. Uh, so I guess takes advantage of the rankle sort of system, 
and basically uh, tr- 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 tries to turn off that process with, and, and therefore hence because very potent anti-resorbing. In other words, it just reduces the amount of, of bone you're dissolving at any time. So rancor is important is a very important messenger in that sense. Well, tell us a little bit about steroids. Is there steroids are used so much, particularly in gastroenterology and, mm. and uh, rheumatoid and rheumatology mm. and uh, well, just about every field of medicine now uses steroids in some way. Do, w- what's the issue with steroids? Tell us about that. And is there a safe dose? Look, the main issue or the look, steroids do affect both the bone formation and bone resorption, but the one of the primary defects is actually a bone formation issue. So it affects the osteoblast function. So you don't form bone as quickly. So, so suppressing the osteoblast. Correct. Mm. So it is, it's still a mismatch, and the bottom line is that that's, that is the predominant issue. The, it is a dose-relative effect. So the higher the dose of steroids, the more the the, the greater the risk of bone loss. The and in, in theory, the, 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 I mean, in terms of what the safe dose is, I mean, we, we generally say anything over seven and a half milligrams, which is a normal sort of steroid production for the body, you're much higher risk. And that's why the general recommendations would be you start treating people mm. or, or protecting people's bones once they get to those sort of levels. However, we do know that people lose bone even at lower doses. Yes. We know that you can also lose bone with inhaled or other forms of steroids other than just tablets. The general way of thinking about it is you try to minimize exposure as much as possible however you obviously need to treat the underlying condition so the lowest dose where you can treat the underlying condition is the most important thing the if you can go with an inhaled version you tend to have less steroid effect in the bloodstream so that's probably not a bad thing for example in say crohn's or something like that we might use you know a a, 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 a you know gastrointestinal sort of version whereby to reduce absorption which is probably beneficial yeah, for the high first pass effect. exactly yeah. so there is yeah. re- reduction in that sense but there is still some absorption the key thing really i guess is uh, being aware of the bone health minimizing the dose and therefore and so when you do start the steroids we, it's good to get a baseline assessment of fracture risk yes and i guess monitor things very closely because most of that bone loss will happen in the first three to six months so you want to get onto things and recognize the issue early is there a, a, a fracture that's much more common than other fractures? Tell, tell us, can you give us a little sense of that? Yeah, the most common fractures would be vertebral fractures. Are, are so, they all symptomatic? Can, can you have vertebral yeah. fractures without really feeling very much? A lot of vertebral fractures are actually non-symptomatic or asymptomatic, so what we call radiological mm. fractures. So it's when you do other scans, other x-rays, you might notice the, the fracture, wedging. the wedging, or loss of height. So it's very classic sort of symptom over time that people do lose height as you gradually get wedging in different vertebrae and that's a very classic way of, of noting. So the loss of height does imply a fracture, there's been a fracture. It, it's, in that right age could be yes, I mean yes. there are other reasons that you could lose height, yes. for example vertebral disc etc yes. could, could be affected but commonly in the right sort of population as we get a bit older we all get a bit hunched over kyphotic, mm. that, uh, that loss of height often does suggest compression and a lot of the guidance would suggest if you lose a couple of centimetres in height you should be you should be screened for osteoporosis on the basis that you may well have fractures that you don't know about. Do, are we seeing more fractures today than you think than we used to uh, 30, 40 years ago when we're not so aware of perhaps doing, I don't know whether DEXA scans were even available mm-hmm. 40 years ago, but do, do you think there's more osteoporosis and bone, metabolic bone disease now than there was? Look, yes, and I think the biggest factor is age because when we think about osteoporosis, we're talking about fracture risk and the age is one of those really strong risk factors that we can't obviously modify. So mm-hmm. we have an ageing population yes. and as you mentioned, the figures, a large percentage of the older population, once you get to 70, 80, a big proportion of people will have osteoporosis. So just on that virtue alone, there is a much higher risk of osteoporosis. I think the other factors to think about in terms of comorbidities is something like 
obesity or diabetes, they are mm. also associated mm. with fracture risk and our population is obviously growing in that sense. Yes, it's another and, epidemic, isn't it? And so, so therefore, in that sense, there are also some of the risk factors for osteoporosis are also increasing. Mm. So we are seeing more cases. You are right that we are able to pick it up more closely. I guess we are recognising it more than we have in the past, but we are still missing a lot of cases. And I think that people still misunderstand what osteoporosis is as in from a society point of view and that's why people aren't being screened and as an to give you an idea in australia there is a screening program for osteoporosis so everyone over the age of 70 can get a dexa scan and in theory that's the idea that everyone should be screened with a dexa scan over the age of 70 but the uptake of that is actually very very low if you compare it to say in other screening programs T- tell us a little bit about the dexa scan can you what 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 is that exactly can you explain that? Yeah, the DEX scan is a type, a special type of X-ray. It is a way of measuring bone density, so how dense the bones are. And we know that the lower your bone density, basically the thinner the bone and the more likely you are the fracture. It's not the only uh, risk factor in terms of when you're considering osteoporosis and fracture risk, but it is a significant risk factor. Mm-hmm. So it's a very good screening test to pick people who might otherwise be at risk and who haven't got symptoms. If you already have osteoporosis or you've had a fracture, you still have osteoporosis regardless of the bone density scan result, but the bone density scan can be used for monitoring bone density over time. But basically, the lower your bone density, the higher the risk of fracture, and it goes together with other risk factors such as age, previous fracture, menopausal status. Those other factors mm-hmm. are also considered, but it is a significant risk factor. And I think the World Health Organization have that classification that's based on the T-score, the, mm-hmm. the, the comparison to a young adult. Yep. Is a young adult, who is a young adult? Is that a 25-year-old? What is Generally about 20. 20 okay. yeah, generally, you consider it as a 20-year-old. There isn't that much change in bone density once you're in the 20 to 30s. That is peak bone mass right, time. Okay. But like, and then that decline tends to increase yeah. after that. And if you're two and a half standard deviations less than mm. the T score is two and a half standard deviations less than that, it's osteoporosis. Like, yeah. yeah, one to two point four nine. It's it's osteopenia. Yeah. Um, if you have an osteoporotic fracture, does that heal at the same rate as a non-osteoporotic fracture, or, or is there a tendency yeah. for non-union? Do, do you know much? Well, there shouldn't they, be much of a change in terms of healing, healing time because a fracture is still a fracture. I guess the main concern with a fracture would be the risk of a future fracture. And I guess the key thing to be aware of is that we know that that risk is especially increased in the first one to two years after a fracture. So the concern that we often have is that once you've had a fracture, you you have osteoporosis by definition regardless of other results. So you do deserve or you really should be on some sort of osteoporosis medications and not Mm. just calcium, Mm. vitamin D, but actually proper Mm. anti-resorptive therapy. So uh, yeah. you were talking there about, about also about the age of screening mm. and you know, we're starting at 70. Why don't we start earlier? Why aren't we more about you know, prevention of osteoporosis and osteopenia? Yeah, the definition, the reason it's 70 is because we're looking at fracture risk and because age is also a very major risk factor in terms of, of risk. Therefore, what we generally say is once you get to the age of 70 and you've got a, a T-score of minus 2.5, your fracture risk is now at the stage where you should be treated. That's where the, where, where the mm. cutoffs come from. Mm. You're right. In theory, we should potentially be picking things, looking at maybe yeah. screening it earlier. And looking at those osteopenic patients. Yes, correct. Yeah. And there is actually data now that treatment of osteopenic patients can actually produce, prevent fractures okay. and prevent bone loss. And, and what I tell all my patients, in fact, is we are much better at preventing bone loss than mm. we are at building bone at the moment. So yes. you're much better okay. off getting in early, yes. preventing bone loss first. But, but the guidelines aren't? supportive of that at this stage they're, they're mm. catching up with that the philosophy maybe correct the i guess the 
guidelines, right now the guidelines in Australia, because Australia has, I guess, very stringent guidelines and it's based on, you know, very strong evidence, is that we have very good data in people who already have osteoporosis. The data with osteopenia or pre-osteoporosis patients uh, is getting there and it's increasing in volume. But I guess at this stage, the it's not something that it would be, that is, you know, used all the time. Okay. But I think that increasingly we would be focused on trying to prevent bone loss and not just in seeing steroids, not just in seeing, say, people on prostate cancer and on, and mm-hmm. on hormone therapy, but even postmenopausal women, for example. Can you tell us a little bit about the associated conditions? So there's an association with COPD and and rheumatoid. We mentioned diabetes. Yes. It, it, well, in rheumatoid and COPD, is it because of the steroids that are being used in those conditions or is it an independent mm. association? Steroids, yes. Rheumatoid itself is actually an independent risk factor. Okay. So we know that rheumatoid does cause periarticular osteoporosis and we know that, look, in general, inflammatory condition would be a risk factor for osteoporosis in general because okay. the inflammatory process does lead to increased bone cycles. So any inflammatory condition that has poor, poorly controlled inflammation would be a potential risk factor. So even, say, inflammatory bowel disease, mm. for example, if the, if, if the symptoms are not well controlled, potentially mm. that in itself... Regardless of the steroid use. Yes. Irrespective of the steroid Correct. That in itself would potentially be a risk factor. Um, what, what about diabetes? What's the relationship there in type 1 and type 2? Yeah, so look, it's interesting with, with diabetes because we often say people who have diabetes and are overweight have a higher bone density because yes. from, from that point of view, there's more padding. Yes. The, however, we know that bone quality is actually poorer in people with diabetes and they right. do get different type of fractures. So, but, so we know that bone quality is reduced. Yeah, both cortical and trabecular. Yes. But both yes. For example, people with diabetes are more likely to have, say, forearm fractures, for example. So there are slightly different changes. Okay. But overall, we know that there is actually an increased risk of fracture in people with diabetes and weight. Okay. So it's not actually a protective factor, so to speak. And from a GI perspective, we see increased uh, osteoporosis and osteopenia and celiac disease because their, mm. their market efficient absorption is poor. But what about the relationship with anti-epileptics, um, Tegretol, um, primidone, thiazides, mm. I mean, even PPIs have now, you know, that, that's come under a, a, yeah. a, 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 some examination, hasn't it? And mm. it's a bit controversial. But do, do you, do you recognise that in clinical practice that there's a much yes. increased risk with some of those drugs? Some of them, look, I think the question often is anti, some of the older anti-epileptics, we do, we, sometimes that might be the only risk factor. I guess this, yeah. the, the sort of question gets raised when you might have a young person mm-hmm. who you wouldn't otherwise expect to have osteoporosis and have very low dense bone density, and that's where yeah. you start raising those sort of questions. I think right. anti-epileptics, we do get asked about quite a fair bit. Uh, in terms of the other medications, maybe not, uh, thiazides, maybe not so much, because if anything, thiazides, I guess increased calcium reabsorption in in the in the kidneys. So okay. sometimes some people can get what we call hypercalcemia or high calcium loss in the urine. And we actually use thiazides to treat that, yes. for example. So depends on the situation. In that sense, some of the diuretics may may lead to calciuria or calcium loss, for example, and there might be slightly increased risk of fracture in that sense. So yeah, look, medications, yes, but I think that the look antiepileptics, yes. But the biggest ones are really steroids and mm-hmm. still anything that affects hormones. And alcohol consumption to another factor. Yeah, and alcohol yeah. and tobacco. Oh, yeah, and tobacco mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. So if we look, to, if we look at treatment, mm-hmm. um, Sam, I, I, we, you know, we've got some of the medications we'll come to. What, what about the sort of the conservative things? Is weight-bearing exercise, it's obviously good for us all to be doing some mm-hmm. exercise. Yes. Uh, our balance is going to be improved and mm-hmm. you know, muscle tone and so forth is going to improve our, our ability to walk and not, not fall, trip, so forth. But what, what about... That weight-bearing exercise, and perhaps we can talk about calcium and calcium and vitamin D. Can you make some comments about those sorts of yep. 
approaches. Look, weight bearing is actually very beneficial. It's, and the old adage that if you don't use it, you lose it is absolutely true with bones and musculoskeletal health. So, if you, so we know that, for example, people who go up to space with anti-gravity, they yes. lose a fair bit of a, a large proportion, 60-70% of their bone mass very, very quickly. Yes. So I think that's a simple way of thinking. So you do really need to use your bones to actually make use of that. In terms of weight-bearing exercise, there is data, increasing data that weight-bearing exercise does prevent bone loss and there is data that specific exercise programs actually do help. So there was a study from the group up in Griffith University up in Queensland which actually did very clearly show that their exercise program actually prevented bone loss. Oh, okay. the, so, that, that, so there is good, yeah. strong evidence. Do, do the astronauts get their bone back when they return? Over they time, if they that, – astronauts are very fit people, but when they come back to Earth, what most people don't realise is they can't just walk around because mm-hmm. they've lost all that muscle mass and bone mass. Yes. But with exercises, and over time, they do get it back. Right, okay. But I guess it depends on how long they're away for, but I guess they do really – that's why they do they do have a big emphasis on trying to prevent bone loss, make mm-hmm. sure they're really mm-hmm. fit before they go. Mm-hmm. But obviously, once they're up, they're not going to have any weight-bearing exercise, and that's always going to be the issue. But it's, I mean, a big, it's a big medical risk for them, isn't it? But, yeah, but it, there is definitely benefit from weight-bearing exercise. It's free. Yes. And, look, I usually tell my patients pretty much any exercise counts as weight-bearing. So, even standing and walking is good enough. Yes. The only things that really don't count is swimming and cycling. People are going to travel to Mars in the future. Yeah. They've got to walk when they get there. It's well, fractures. Mm, um, well, exactly. it's got to be interesting, isn't it? It's another absolutely issue. Um, what about calcium replacement? How important is that? There's been a real craze, hasn't there, to replace calcium? Yeah. Is Cal- it only for people who are calcium deficient or got poor calcium intake yeah. in their diet? So calcium supplementation, there is some controversy about calcium, and I do get asked about calcium mm. supplementation a fair bit. The general data would suggest that you do need calcium for your bones because calcium is one of the building blocks of the bone. I generally recommend that we aim for, say, two to three serves of dairy or calcium serves a day and only in people who can't get that those sort of serves through dietary. So dietary calcium is always better. Mm. Then you would look at supplementation with calcium and I would generally limit that to usually one tablet a day. So dietary history is important. Dietary calcium. Trying to assess. Um, I, I understand yeah. 750 milligrams of calcium sort of uh, above that's what we're recommending. Mm. That's about six glasses of milk, which most of us wouldn't have. But Correct. there are lots of different sources of calcium, exactly. of course. So that's dietary history is important. What about combining it with vitamin D? Yeah. So, and vitamin D, we always want people to be vitamin D replete because yes. vitamin D helps calcium absorption. Yeah. Vitamin D has other bone effects. Uh, what we do know, especially in Melbourne, a lot of people are vitamin D deficient, mm. especially in winter. Sure. And I guess that's one of the challenges we have for different reasons. And, and in it, summer. And even in summer, we're covered up or we're indoors <laughs> anyway. Yeah. So it is a big issue. All the treatment studies for the osteoporosis medications, which we will talk about, yes. I'm sure subsequently, all assume that people have vitamin D replete, replete and yes. assume that everyone is on appropriate calcium. So I guess think of it as a cofactor or part of that treatment that you that you need to get, to get full effect of your treatment. You do need calcium vitamin D. Having said that, calcium vitamin D alone is not adequate treatment for someone who's had fractures or query or has osteoporosis. Is there a risk of cardiac disease? Is that, is that, is there, there was a controversy about taking calcium and uh, mm. I, I don't know whether we're talking about calcium plus vitamin D, but certainly taking calcium yeah. in regard to cardiac risk factors. Mm. Can you make a comment about that? There was a, a review probably about 10, 15 years ago, mm. which suggested there might be increased cardiac events with regards to calcium supplementation, and that was based on a retrospective or a review of previous studies, including the Women's Health Initiative. The subsequent studies have not shown a, cal- have not shown a cardiac concern. Mm. I think the things to highlight in that study or in that review, a lot of those patients were, were – a lot of the patients in that study were on very high doses of calcium, so not just one tablet a day. 
a lot of those patients are a bit older. Yes. And also a lot of patients were on calcium citrate, which is a different form of calcium which we usually use. So interesting. So there are some nuances in that study. Right, okay. But for peace of mind, all subsequent reviews haven't shown a safety safety concern. And But in any case, that's the reason why we generally recommend that there's no evidence that dietary calcium causes a problem. Mm. It's just mm. that the, the theoretical basis is that if you have a calcium tablet, your calcium might bounce yes. up more quickly. Yes. And okay. that, that, that's the theoretical concern. But at a low dose of calcium supplementation, there's, no, there's never been any harm shown in subsequent studies. So we have weight bearing exercises. We encourage uh, a good dietary intake of calcium and maybe supplement, mm. and we encourage uh, vitamin D replacement if, mm. if it's if it's uh if if it's not replete what, what about caffeine what what can we say about caffeine is there any relationship between that and oh, caffeine positive negative well probably not a positive thing caffeine there is there is a suggestion that ca- caffeine might increase bone turnover and increase bone loss so high 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 caffeine use might be associated so it's a question mark yeah okay we won't make a big noise about that <laughs> um what about now jumping into the medications so take take us through this because there, there's a lot of medications yeah. Can you can you take us through this yeah. from, from the biphosphonates and okay. the, uh, yeah I'll let you. So I like it. to yeah, so when we think about medications, we're going back to that whole bone turnover side things and when we have bone loss over time. The simple way to think it is there are medications which we call anti-resorptives, which basically stop you from losing bone, so you dig smaller holes. And there are medications that are what we call anabolic agents or bone forming or bone building drugs. And so I guess that's the simple way of thinking about it. Generally, we use the bone, the anti-resorptive therapies first in Australia. Part of that reason is cost and I guess is cost and I guess reimbursement is part of the reason. The also with regard, and we'll come to the anabolic therapies, is that there's not many options from anabolic therapy. They're expensive and at the moment they're all injectable. So, okay. so obviously it may not be as acceptable to people. Mm. In terms of the, of the anti-resorptive therapies, the oldest therapies are the bisphosphonates. There are, that you can, uh, but like I said, there are options really are weekly bisphosphonates, monthly bisphosphonates, and both of those can be tablets. There is also an annual infusion that you can have, which is called zoledronic acid. And then the other alternative, which is also antiresorptive, but slightly different, is the proli or denosumab, which is a six monthly injection under the skin. So those are all very effective treatments. Is well, one better than the other? When would you choose a, a, an annual or a, a, yeah. a longer acting drug, like a shorter acting Look, drug? there's very, there's not that many head-to-head studies between different forms, but generally the intravenous or the subcutaneous or the injectable forms tend to be more potent. The one of the, look, I mean, one of the issues with the tablets, or the main issue with the tablets is gastrointestinal side effects, so heartburn, etc., and that's often a problem for patients. Also compliance. Mm. If we know that if you miss one tablet out of every four, you, your, your effectiveness will drop by 50%. Okay. And That's if you miss two every, every month, that drops to almost down to, you know, about 10% of its normal effectiveness. So it is a significant problem from right. a tablet point okay. of view. So, in fact, a lot of my patients would move on to, the, to one of the other options. The annual infusion and six-month injections are, are the other options you could consider. The both very effective and they have convenience. The, I guess how you choose depends on the particular patient. The main thing to be aware about the annual infusion is some people can get what we call an acute phase reaction. So it's a flu-like illness usually after the first dose. But I usually warn patients about it and, and usually it recovers spontaneously. But if you need to, you could use sort of anti-inflammatories or aspirin or Panadol to help you get through that. But okay. it's not infectious. It's just a reaction to the drug for the first time. The Prolia, which is a very popular drug now, which is a six-monthly injection, is very effective. The biggest thing to be aware about the proli injections is that 
once you start, you need to have the six-month injection on time all the time. Whereas the other agents don't wear off straight away, the six-month injection does wear off at the six-month mark. So it is really important that let's say you have an injection in January, for example, you have it every January and every July. And it's sort of an ongoing treatment. So I like to go in on the basis that if you're going to commit to the six-month injections or probably it is basically an indefinite treatment. Okay. That's the really important thing. So you're not going to get a break and that's really important to understand. So in someone who is 90, that's not usually an issue. But if someone is 50, you might be less inclined to go mm. on a medication that's potentially indefinite. Mm, sure. It, it, and the, you're studying osteonecrosis. So can you tell us a little bit about that risk? How real is that? Okay, so when we talk about risk, and one of the reasons why a lot of patients don't go into therapy is the perceived risk of of the side effects. The first thing I say is all the osteoporosis medications, the benefits far outweigh the risk. So I think that we need to put that into perspective. Mm. And in fact, if we talk about the most common side effects, it's usually the gastrointestinal effects with the oral bisphosphonates or the acute phase reaction or the flu-like illness with the intravenous. If we then go to the rarer side, this is what people sort of are worried about. Osteoporosis of the jaw is one of those rare side effects that people are concerned about. The risk in osteoporosis, and I think people often overstate the site, the risk is about somewhere between one in ten thousand and one in a hundred thousand people, depending on uh, depending on which drug they're taking. The, but it is a very very low risk. It's the risk is much lower than the risk in the setting of cancer patients who receive similar therapies at much higher, more frequent doses. So there is a difference in terms of risk. So very very rare. The I think the main things to be aware about from osteonecrosis, the jaw point of view, is the one of the strongest factors is oral health. So if you have good look after your teeth, you significantly reduce the risk of that happening. And generally, so what I generally say is if someone I see someone for the first time and they've got very poor dentition, they need to, teeth coming out, etc., you would think about getting that sorted out before you start treatment. Mm-hmm. But okay. in most patients, that's not necessary. What osteoporosis of the jaw basically means if you need an extraction or you have a dental implant put in or something along those lines, it may not heal as quickly. Okay. So rather than healing in the six to eight week period, that that May, may take longer to get coverage or over time. That's what the main concern is. So if I, if someone was going to have an extraction done in a month's time, I would wait for that to be done and to heal completely before I would start the therapy. But in general, if you're already on therapy and you subsequently need dental work, the risk is still so low mm-hmm. and the benefits still outweigh the risk that it shouldn't be a reason not to be on therapy. Okay, patients need to be reassured really and just explain, mm-hmm. risk explained. What about the atypical fractures of the femoral shaft? Yeah. Is that something you see? Increasingly, yes. I mean, the difference between one of the is with the atypical femoral fractures, there's various theories as to why they happen. They there are certain populations that's more common. For example, we do see it at much at much higher rates in the Asian population for, for for one reason or another. But the theory behind it is that because these anti-resorptive drugs reduce the amount of bone you're dissolving, you're not turning over the bone as much. You're not getting remodeling. You're not getting fresh bone as much. So you might put yourself at increased risk of stress fractures through the old bone. So generally, we tend to see it with after longer therapy, so longer durations of therapy with bisphosphonates is what we're generally seeing it with. And so what we sometimes try to do in someone who has lower risk uh, of osteoporosis is you may try to spread out the dose or minimize dose over time. So you might be able to have a bit of a break from the from the osteoporosis medications for a short period of time. No, this is only applies to bisphosphonates, not to the six-monthly prolia injections. Right, okay. The... Regardless of that, having said that, also, you still stress that the risk of a fracture is much higher than the risk of an atypical fracture. So, therefore, the benefits still out, the benefits of treatment would still outweigh the risk of treatment. The, what I usually tell my patients is that most of these patients that get atypical femoral fractures and they're very, very low rates still, they usually have groin pain beforehand in hindsight. So, 
Mm-hmm. I think so. What if someone who's been on therapy for a while? Terrific I was. Pain. I would always ask them about groin, groin pain. pain. Mm-hmm. If they have groin pain, we would screen them for for, mm-hmm. for that risk. But like I said, overall time, if they, someone has lower to medium risk of fracture down the track, you might try to have a bit of a break from therapy. That's a great tip. Great tip. What, what about the other drugs that are available to us? Yep. So the so we mentioned probably which is a six month injection. Yes. The other therapy that is available at the moment is what we call teriparatide, which is yes. a bone building or an anabolic drug. Yes. And that's and and that's a daily injection that you would give yourself. And it is the, at the moment the only anabolic or bone building drug we have. Therapy in Australia is limited to 18 months of reimbursement. That's a parathyroid hormone. That's pregnant. Correct. Yes. And so it's limited to 18 months of therapy, but you can have up to 24. So the reimbursement is 18 months of therapy, but you can have up to 24 months. Of, and, and, and the reason for that is if you look at the warning set labels in the rat studies, there was a slightly higher risk of bone cancers at high, high doses of parathyroid hormone because it is a bone-forming drug. Right. The reassurance would be that there's never been a case of this bone cancer in humans, yes. in, and this drug has been around for the last 15 years, yes. so it's not a new drug in that sense. And in the rat studies, they were exposed to much higher doses compared mm-hmm. to humans. So, But basically, as precaution, it is in general throughout the world in various jurisdictions, it is still limited to 24 months, but there has been no cases of bone cancer or osteosarcoma. It is the most effective drug we have on the market in Australia at the moment. It is the main downsides is it is a daily injection and cost. Am I right in saying these are these are better for all these therapies are also better for vertebral than for non-vertebral Correct, yes. uh, bone building or, or prevention of bone loss? Correct. Okay. Are there other drugs that we have? A sex hormone replacement is not, that's not for established osteoporosis, is it? It's only to prevent bone loss. So sex hormone right. replacement, so it depends. If someone is, okay, so we're talking about a man, for example, someone who's androgen deficient, they should be replaced at a normal testosterone level right, yes. for various reasons, bone being one of those health reasons. Yes. And that, and that would be to help prevent bone loss. If you have a, actually had a fracture, in theory, you should, have, you should be both on testosterone replacement but also the, the anti-resorbity therapy in addition to that. Okay. In addition to that, because the in terms of in terms of women, uh, so we're talking about postmenopause or hormone therapy, the various studies have shown a very significant fracture benefit from, or as in fracture reduction, in patients who do take hormone therapy. So there is very clear benefit there. I guess the main thing in that setting is would be to think about consider the the pros and the cons of what yes. you're using it for. So if someone had, was recently in postmenopausal and you're getting significant hot flush and vasomotor symptoms, yeah, look, it might be a really good, good option. Yes. The yes. flip side would be the potential risk side of things, and I guess prolonged use, potentially there is a higher risk DVT of, and of strokes and DVT strokes, like breast that. cancer, for example. Yes. But I think it's really going through and picking the right patient. So the younger patient tends to be the better patient to, to choose from and also the patient who obviously doesn't have a history of breast oh. cancer or family history. I should ask you: Do you combine do you combine the bone building mm. like, with therapies? You mentioned uh, teriparatide. Yeah. Uh, do you combine those with the bifosinates or uh, prolia, the denosumab? Uh, Are the, they combined or, or not? In, not on the PBS or the Medicare pharmaceutical benefits scheme doesn't allow us to combine it, so right. we don't. In studies, if you do combine it, the, the results are better. Yes. So you do get better results by combining it, but we, we don't on the basis of reimbursement issues. Okay, all right. So or would you finish the, the teriparatide and then perhaps consider 
a buffer so I don't have to finish them out. We'll go the other way around. When, so when you do finish a terapeutic, you do need to consolidate with something. So you think about it, the terapeutic builds the bone, yeah, then you need to give something to keep the bone there. So you resource. always need to consolidate with an antiresorbent yeah. of some sort. We briefly mentioned also uh, another group of drugs that are not available yet, the sclerostin inhibitors. Can, can you tell us about that? Are they an exciting... Is that the future, do you think, perhaps? It is. Uh, the sclerostin inhibitors are coming. They are widely used now in various other countries, and they, that's been in the last couple of years they've had started receiving approval. And they are in that bone building category. They're easier to use as not a daily injection compared with the teraperitide. And so it is a very exciting development. And, and I guess if you look head to head, the sclerostin agents do tend to cause much more bone formation than just a teraperitide. So it is quite potentially exciting. The main caveat or the main th issues will be obviously reimbursement costs. The other thing also is in the initial studies, there was one of the studies did suggest that there might be a slightly higher rate of cardiovascular events, and that's one of the things. So I guess in someone who has a cardiovascular history, mm. you might be a bit more cautious. Mm. I will stress mm. that that was in one of three big studies, and so I don't. I think the jury's still out on that, but we do know that it is. It has been improved in various countries, such as the US, Europe, and Japan. Mm. And, and it is being widely used and obviously being very closely monitored. So thank you for running through this. This is a very elegant description of metabolic bone disease and, and you've demonstrated how it's, you know, it's again, it's another incredible science mm. and that you've beautifully uh, dissected out for us today. Can I ask, how do you keep yourself fit? You look like a fit gentleman. What, what do you do? Are you, are, do you have a plan now? You're quite a young man. Keep yourself fit so you're not getting osteopenia later in life? Uh, look, I think the biggest thing is just to stay fit and healthy in general. The, I think walking is a really, really good exercise. And I think through work, if you're walking around a fair bit. So I have actually been counting my steps and trying to get, yes. and trying very hard to yeah. get to 10,000 every day. Yes. Which can be quite challenging with our sedentary lifestyles. But I think that the, it's not just the bone, but we know that there are a lot of other benefits from, sure. from, from, from yeah. ke keeping fit and healthy. Yeah. So thank you so much for making time today. I really appreciate yeah. uh, the discussion. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining me in that conversation with Sim Nguyen, a very impressive young doctor who's clearly making a very, very substantial uh, difference to the lives of Australians with his research on metabolic bone disease. When I asked Sim what he would do if he had osteoporosis and minimal trauma fracture, his advice was at this stage to take teriparatide for 18 months followed by biphosphonate rather than denosumab as accelerated bone loss occurs if denosumab therapy is withdrawn and of course he would combine that medical therapy with exercise and good diet. Thank you very much for joining me. During the podcast series, we will be covering a wide range of topics across many specialty interests. The discussions are not intended as specific medical advice for patients, but as general information only, and reflect the opinions of the guests interviewed. Requests for new topics to be reviewed and comments about the conversation you've listened to are welcomed and may be emailed to manager at gihealth.com.au. <laughs>